Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring former Chancellor of the Exchequer and current editor of the Evening Standard, George Osborne. And what a day to be talking to on the day that Theresa May announced she would resign if a Brexit deal passed, if and when indeed, and uh, the night that the Commons held those indicative votes. Um, So it was exciting anyway, it was even more exciting uh, to talk to him. And he's obviously someone that I've followed for a long time, being an obsessive about politics. And I've always had um, uh, a fascination with people who really enjoy politics as a as a pursuit. And I've always had the sense that he was one of those people. And obviously, he was a he was a uh, high flying individual as a, as, as a youngster. So someone that I've followed for a long time and was fascinated by what he and David Cameron did to the Conservative Party in modernising it. Um, so he's someone that's, you know, I feel like I've been following for years and he's still so young. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's a brilliant interview because he has so many really funny stories and I won't ruin any of them. There's some brilliant stories. And on top of that, there's some really deep, proper politics in it about his own politics, but also about the Conservative Party, the pressures in the Tory party, what he thinks about politics now, the way forward for Brexit. So there's a lot of hopeful stuff in there. And uh, what is really incredible is, I think he mentions this in the interview, the longest-serving Chancellor, which for someone so young really is quite incredible. He was Shadow Chancellor at 33. Um, So he's got a really unique perspective on politics, and he's still very active and still very influential, and you get the sense, I suppose with a lot of the guests, but you really get the sense with him that there is a lot of road left for him to do stuff, uh, and he still has the desire, and the way that he's... Editing the the Evening Standard is is done with the same energy that he put into being a politician. Um, so he's a brilliant guest, uh, and it was. I mean, I could feel that we'd slightly run over, but I didn't get anywhere near close to asking so many other things I wanted to ask him about. So who knows? Maybe a, another opportunity in the future. But he was brilliant. Uh, thank you to all of you who've seen me on tour. Uh, the tour continues and indeed has been extended. I'm in Bristol on the 31st of March. Uh, that show has sold out. I'm in Faversham on the 5th of April. And the 9th of May, I've had an extra day at the Salford Lowry. Uh, on the 10th of May, I'm in Aberystwyth. On the 12th of May, I'm in Scotland for the Edinburgh Stand. And on the 13th of May, at the Glasgow Stand. Uh, always wonderful gigs. On the 14th of May, the Newcastle Stand, which is a favourite of mine. Uh, the 18th of May, the wonderful Chorley Little Theatre. And on the 25th of May, I've added an extra day at the Camberley Theatre. Tickets for all those shows are available through the website, mattford.com slash live. And don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Thank you very much. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Excellent. Give me a tip if you've been here before. Welcome back regulars. Give me a tip if this is your first time. Excellent. Oh, welcome first timers. And what a day. What a day. Theresa May has announced that she will go. Um, She's announced that she'll go at the end of the Brexit negotiation. So probably about another 30 years in Downing Street. (laughs) Not quite the resignation that some people um, uh, think it is. If you haven't seen the news, she announced it just a few hours ago. Um... She said if she gets her deal through, then she'll go. Which, I mean, there's something quite tragic about that, isn't there? If people will agree to that, go on then, sod off. <laughs> and we'll support you once you've fucked off. Uh, so she's uh, prepared to go at any point. Um, and uh, had been blocked on putting her third meaningful vote to the House of Commons, of course, uh, by John Burko. Uh, 
Theresa May has shown the sort of level of uh, dedication to her, her bill. Really only seen... She's got the stamina of a gambling addict. Uh, Burko's... Uh, Burko's uh, more of an intervention from John Burko, really. Uh, she thought that fruit was going to pay out, and it never was. Uh, he rightfully got involved uh, and uh, gave her an extension. Now, this is the thing. She's been granted uh, an extension from the EU. Um, but the thing is with an extension, it's like any sort of extension when you're at university. You get the extension and then you do fuck all for the first two. <laughs> She'll be on the piss for the first four, man. Get to the night before she's got the hand the damn thing in. People go, have you finished off that piece of European legislation? Oh, fucking hell. God, I'm going to be eating beans for the next month now, but... Uh, be interesting to see how she gets on. Of course, everyone has been trying to unlock the uh, parliamentary arithmetic, and everyone's been trying to find a solution themselves. Uh, Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, uh, came up with his own uh, solution, uh, which he then admitted in a letter, legally changed nothing. Um, all it was was effectively them uh, getting the EU to promise that they really would stick to the deal, the political equivalent of getting them to swear on their mum's life. <laughs> gonna, I know you mean it, but you just swear on your mum's life. I know you mean it, but it's just for them back home. It's, it'd be helpful. Just swear on your mum's life, mate. It'd just make my life a bit easier. Uh, this piece of uh, paper, or whatever you want to call it, was known as Cox's Cod Piece. Now, uh, we've had various uh, things that Malthouse compromised, now Cox's Cod Piece. Cox's Cod Piece uh, seemed needlessly sexual. <laughs> for what is quite a, a, a dull piece of, of, of bureaucratic paperwork to give it a sexual element uh, I thought left a, left a, it just left an odd taste in the mouth uh, for want of a better phrase but it, uh, that wasn't even meant to be a joke but uh, this is going to continue next week they're going to vote on uh, Hammond's handjob which uh, will apparently re release a lot of the tension around the Brexit deal so we'll, We'll see, uh, we'll see how they get on. Uh, Geoffrey Cox himself was bombarded by right-wing yellow vests at the end of last week. I don't know if you saw these new uh, British version of Gilets jaunes. Uh, Far-right English nationalists. And they stormed into his office, were very angry, and they chanted, we want a new Attorney General. We want a new Attorney General. Which firstly suggests that the far-right in England has, has badly lost its way. Um, got a man with a surname like Cox and you didn't even work it into a pun. What sort of patriots are these people? No self-respecting patriot would have let a surname like Cox off a bat. I mean, you could have had all sorts of banners. Cox blocker, Cox sucker. Um, I hate Cox. Uh, that's obviously Lesbians for Leave, a new group that Esther McVeigh has set up. Various options available to them that they chose not to use. Um, and, and, of course, the proceedings of the last week have been very emotionally taxing for a lot of people. Uh, Paul Maynard is a, a junior whip. Uh, and when he was summoned to Downing Street uh, to talk about the arrangements for the deal, got so emotional at the thought that Brexit might not happen uh, that he burst into tears. Um, it's, well, exactly, mate. It's Brexit. It's not Titanic. Pull yourself together. <laughs> what he actually said, he said, he gave an interview to the Daily Mail. He said, I started to believe that Brexit might be slipping away and I burst into tears. Uh, mate, you're in government. This isn't the X Factor. <laughs> but this isn't going to help. Ever since I was 12 years old, all I've ever wanted was an old deal Brexit. <laughs> Simon, don't take this chance away from me. I need to go to judges' houses to get an old deal Brexit. It's all I've ever wanted. Paul Maynard's family coming on. Since he was that high, he's been obsessed with an old deal Brexit. <laughs> oh, it's all he'd ever do at Christmas. We'd wheel him out. He'd talk about his no deal Brexit. He's got talent, that lad. We've been working the clubs. He wrote down in tears. I mean, if, you, if you're teary, I'd suggest the whip's office really isn't for you. Uh, it's not really the place for an emotional chap, is it? Hey, hey, Paul, the PM wants a word about the education bill. Don't you start. You're going to set me off. Don't you start. 
comes to me with a three-line word. Oh, that's the last thing I need. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is apparently now on side uh, with Theresa May's deal, partly perhaps as a result of her uh, announcing that she's going to go. But he, he gave an interview to the Daily Mail where he said some incredible things. He said, uh, I apologise for changing my mind. Theresa May's deal is a bad one. It does not deliver on the promises made in the Tory manifesto, and its negotiation was a failure of statesmanship, yet I am willing to support it. <laughs> what the fucking... What sort of negotiation is this? Mate, that car's a fucking death trap. 15 grand, it's got three wheels and none of the windows. I'll take it. <laughs> There's a bit where he put, no deal is an outcome I would prefer to Mrs May's deal. It would be a fully leaded Brexit. Fully leaded. Uh, and he's, he's meant that to mean a positive thing. Uh, fully leaded petrol, which led to widespread emphysema, asthma and brain damage in people. He's used that as an analogy for a good Brexit. He obviously loves a historical reference, Jacob. He says, The great Duke of Wellington was famous for insisting that the Queen's government must go on and that all responsible politicians have a duty towards such an end if it countermands their own piety. Um, yeah, I, I would say the Duke of Wellington, more famous for Wellingtons, rather than insisting that the Queen's government must go on, that all responsible politicians have a duty towards such an end, even if it counts. If that was a, a question on a daytime TV show, no one would get it. Paul, you're in play. What was Duke of Wellington most famous for? Wellingtons. Eh, eh. It was actually uh, for insisting that the Queen's government must go on and that all responsible politicians have a duty towards such an end, even if it countermands their own piety. Gary, you're in play. Um, <laughs> He also ends, probably the most outlandish thing he says, he says, uh, voters know best and must be trusted. I mean, this guy's gone fucking insane. <laughs> He's not been watching the news in the last three years. Uh, um, Boris, uh, uh, so Jacob is now on side. Boris likened himself to Moses uh, in an interview in the Sunday Telegram and said, the Prime Minister must now summon the spirit of Moses and tell Pharaoh in Brussels, let my people go. Um, yeah, who can, uh, who can forget that part of the Bible where upon receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses said, these Ten Commandments are about, are then tantamount to vassalage. Indeed, who is God and who does he think he is? I say we put it to the Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think the Hebrews have got, I think the time has come for the Hebrews to decide whether they want to be ruled by God or not. And I, uh, all I would say is that if we vote to be independent of this omnipotent, uh, omnipresent individual, <laughs> We will have 350 million fishes and loaves every week. <laughs> uh, he, I, I thought I'd look at the Ten Commandments. He's likening himself to, to, to Moses. I thought I'd look at the Ten Commandments and see how many he would keep. Um, <laughs> and I think I know which one most people are thinking of. But we'll get there. The first one is, you shall have no other gods but me. Um, He's broken that every time he, uh, he looks in the mirror. Um, you, shall not, you shall not make yourself any idol, nor bow down to it or worship it. Um, again, uh, see uh, the answer to number one. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He's probably broken that. Um, you shall remember and keep the Sabbath day holy. He's frequently in the Sunday Telegraph. He doesn't give a shit about that one. Um, respect your father and mother. Okay, perhaps he's got that. Um, you must not commit murder. Um, <laughs> The one we all wanted, in at number seven, you must not commit adultery. Uh, <laughs> number eight, you must not steal. Um, you must not give false evidence against your neighbour. 
It's like God wrote these with Boris in mind. <laughs> the whole thing has been a, a multiple thousands of years worth of trolling. Um, <laughs> this is amazing. You must not be envious of your neighbour's goods. You shall not be envious of his house nor his wife. <laughs> oh, my word. Of all the people for him to liken himself to. But uh, he, um, he's not been the weirdest uh, Tory on Brexit this week. Esther McVeigh. Uh, has launched an online campaign. So she'd launched, you may remember last month, Ladies for Leave. She's launched a new campaign called Hashtag Get to Know WTO, where she answers, I've sat through hours of this today, various YouTube videos where you can email Esther or tweet her with the hashtag Get to Know WTO, where she will uh, relieve you of your uh, worries about uh, a no deal Brexit and WTO terms. Um, of course, it's a, a technique that other regimes should have tried, you know, a one to one with Resolution 1441. Uh, <laughs> I really thought you were going to like that as a joke. That was the uh, that was the, the the resolution that gave a legal base for invading Iraq. Maybe that's why it's killed the room. <laughs> or have people just not heard of it. People just people just aren't as obsessed with the Iraq War as I am. I apologise. Um, but there are various videos where people put these questions to, and she answers them in quite a cheery way. And one of them is about whether businesses will face uh, a hike in VAT. And she says, any changes in VAT won't be borne by the business, they'll be borne by the Treasury. So there's nothing to worry about. You mean, that means we'll all pay for it. I mean, any tax rises will come out of general taxation. If you're very cheery about it, you'll all get fucked over. then. <laughs> she reminds me, you know in those like, dystopian films like Robocop or Terminator, it's sort of set in the future, where the, as a dark satire, people were always, on behalf of the regime, quite cheery about the awful things people are going to currently have to live through. We, you won't need arms on this new planet. They were just getting in the way, so we removed them for you. <laughs> uh, there's a bit in it where she, um, she talks about roaming charges. Roaming charges, mobile phone charges, of course, abolished by the European Union. The reason why, as mobile phone customers on the continent, we don't face any roaming charges because the EU banned them. Uh, and now that we're leaving, there is a threat that they will come back. She, the way she words this is brilliant. She went... There's nothing to fear about roaming charges. Up to 85% of mobile phone companies say they have no current plans to introduce them. <laughs> right, that means 15% do and 85% will. <laughs> no current plans. No current plans. We've had Tories like her before. I think we can talk to him. Look, he's got no current plans to invade Poland. And uh, I'll be addressing all your fears in my new radio series. And um, get it off your chest with the, with the head of the SS. Oh, it would have been better had I not fucked that up. But um, get it off your chest with the head of the SS. Christopher Chope, uh, uh, everyone's favourite Tory MP, um, was uh, on his select committee this week. Uh, they were talking about knife crime. Uh, and in a great clip, you can watch this on, on YouTube, he says to uh, a police commissioner, he says, but couldn't victims of crime help themselves out by getting fitter and running away? <laughs> uh, now, I took that as a personal attack. Uh, just because I'm chubby doesn't mean I'm asking for it. This is, uh, this is victim blaming. Um, Yuri Geller has got involved in Brexit. Uh, you might have seen this in an open letter to the Prime Minister, Yuri Geller who knows the Prime Minister personally, apparently, wrote to, uh, wrote to her through the Daily Mail uh, and said, three years before you became Prime Minister, I predicted your victory when I showed you Winston Churchill's spoon in my Cadillac, which I asked you to touch. <laughs> that isn't a spoon. <laughs> so much to unpick. Yuri Geller's 
got a Cadillac in which he's got Winston Churchill's spoon. And Theresa May's been in it and touched it. Um, it's not that strange, obviously, Paul McKenna had um, Clement Attlee's rolling pin uh, and got Gordon Brown to touch it in the back of his Range Rover. So this stuff does happen. Um, he also, in the letter, claims um, to me, he said, I will use the power of my mind to ensure that Jeremy Corbyn never gets the, te the keys to number 10 Downing Street. I will ensure that they bend out of all proportion to ensure that he never takes up residence there. <laughs> but Yuri thinks you literally get the keys to Downing Street. That's the only way to foil a socialist republic. But um, if he finds out there's a bloke behind the door, he's going to be gutted. Uh, <laughs> Because there was a people's vote, uh, people's vote march at the weekend. Did anyone go on the march? Yay! You lefties, marching. <laughs> Fair play to you. It was, a, it was very exciting to watch the footage of it. Um, I was working. Um, but I would have gone. Um, of course, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't there. He was in Morecambe. And his, his Brexit speech, actually, um, in the spirit of Eric Morecambe, had all the right words, uh, but not necessarily <laughs> in the right order. Uh, <laughs> he, um, of course refused to take part in a meeting of uh, party leaders recently that the Prime Minister called because Chuck Ramuna was there, friend of the show, friend of the show, Chuck Ramuna was there, um, uh, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't stay in a meeting. Now, this is a man who's met with the IRA, Hamas and Hezbollah, <laughs> draws a line at Chuck Ramuna. <laughs> sort of odd set of values. Maybe Chuck is not extreme enough. If he'd have kept his balaclava on, Jeremy would have stayed, but... Uh, <laughs> It does seem odd that that's where you say, you know, there's quite, you know, those questions where you go, who would you have at an ideal dinner party that can be living or dead? It'd be like going, right, Shipman, Savile, Hindley, not Lineker, he did my fucking edit. <laughs> I think you've got your values the wrong way around here, mate. Your priorities are wrong. Um, of course, ex Labour MP Fiona Onasanya has now been released from prison um, and she's put out a promotional video um, that some of you may have seen uh, protesting her innocence. Now, instead of making it in the constituency, uh, or just having a, a neutral background. She's filmed a video with a background that makes it look like she's at the top floor of a skyscraper in New York at night. It's surreal. She's addressing the camera, and in the back is the flickering New York skyline, which obviously screams normal to the voters of Peterborough. <laughs> Why wouldn't your MP commute to New York to protest her innocence at the top of a, the top of a skyscraper? I mean, to be fair to her, at the shop, it was either the Eiffel Tower, Old Trafford, or... Uh, or the New York skyline, so given the three. Uh, I think she probably misunderstood what people said when they said people will judge you on your background. <laughs> I better get a good one. I've just come out of prison. The Lib Dems uh, are gonna change their leader. Vince Cable has said that he's gonna resign soon. Um, I don't know how they're gonna replace his energy, to be honest. <laughs> they're really gonna, all that momentum they've built up with that whippersnapper gone. I mean, it's, it seems such a shame. The first headline I saw about it was uh, Cable to resign in May. I thought, I hope they mean the months. <laughs> Very odd way to do it. Unless they're doing it together on the same day, it'd be quite a nice way to go. Uh, that's really divided the room. Uh, he, he, also, he also said it was time now for a new generation to take over. So um, anyone sort of 60s and down, really. Um, and, uh, and, and big news, of course, uh, this week. Uh, the government has announced uh, a crackdown on internet pornography. Um, from next week, people will have to buy a porn pass uh, in order to access any pornography. It's been dubbed the toss attacks. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone here is going to be personally affected by it, but um, they're already looking at people are called, you know, called to telling the government to repeal the porn laws. So, that, you know. <laughs> Porn laws are going to tear the Tory party in half again. Um, 
but they are looking at some relief around it. You know, there's uh, there's a uh, sort of hardening of opinion around the subject, and um, a lot of MPs say they feel strong-armed into voting for it. But um, the thing is, you know, it's obviously uh, the Treasury are full behind it because it's you know it's a big money shot. So. Uh, well, this was smoked out the people who know those words, and uh, <laughs> will therefore be uh, contributing to uh, the UK tax takes. Thanks very much for that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, what uh, an amazing guest we have. Uh, as always, you've been a wonderful crowd. I'll be back with George Osborne for now. See you in a bit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the second half. Uh, and it is, uh, a, a, well, firstly, what an amazing day uh, to be interviewing tonight's guest. Um, and he is someone that I've um, wanted to interview for a long time. And someone that, absolutely, it's become a catchphrase, but I mean it every month. Uh, it's, it's important to remember that I really do mean it. Um, tonight's guest is someone that I became fascinated with very early on. He rose through politics early. And for anyone who was a political obsessive throughout the Blair years, would have seen his name constantly around the Tory leaders of the time. He was a key moderniser. He worked for John Major, William Hague, subsequent leaders, and then became, at the age of 33, Shadow Chancellor. He was then Chancellor of the UK for six years, one of the dominant political minds and personalities, not just of the coalition years, but of the years since, and reinvented as editor of the Evening Standard, amongst other roles. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, he's someone that... I, I know it's not cool to say this about Tories, but he was always someone that I admired, so uh, I sort of deal with that early on. Um, so, uh, yeah, if I... I fear that I'm already um, getting emotional, but uh, <laughs> I look forward to being appointed to the Whips office uh, later in the week. But, um, ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge... Political party welcome to George Osborne! So, you must be distraught. Yeah, fucking distraught. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you, uh, I'm guessing you found out at the same time the rest of us did, or did you get any advance notice? No, no, I was checking Twitter every five seconds. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, such a shame. A real, a real loss. Um, yeah. um, so, but I think British politics will cope. <laughs> you, um, you had a, a, a you, I said hat. You, you have, I suppose, a strange relationship with Theresa May. When she, well, um, she fired me. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she and did. As much as you have a relationship with the person who fired you. Uh, yeah. yeah, she fired you. But it was also what she said when she fired you. She said you needed to go away and get to know the Conservative Party better. Mm -hmm. Firstly... I've been on that mission <laughs> for three years, and I can report back they don't like her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, you, you tweeted recently um, about Burko's intervention that she should go away and get to know her speaker better. Mm. Um, did she get in touch with you after that? Was there any c communication at all? Well, yes, there was. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a bit of context here. I worked with her for many, many years. Um, I admired her. We were kind of colleagues in the government. She was the Home Secretary. I voted for her to become the Tory leader as an MP. Um, and we have, yeah, she invited me around for a drink um, in Downing Street. Well, uh, recently? Not so recently, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly after the kind of, you know, after the falling out and things were said. But... Which I thought was a good, you know, showed that she was doing what you need to do as a party leader, which is you can't let all these relationships fail. You've got to try and do something to repair them. So, um, what, what, what did you both have to drink? 
I'm not going to go into it. It's great death, but I think we had a glass of white wine each, because, you know, we're Tories. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a glass of white wine, and, and was she kind of rushing it? Or, or was she enjoying, did she say, you know what, I've cleared the day. It's been a long day for her and, you know, and a long day for me, you know. She's got a job and I've got several and, you know. <laughs> was, it, was it awkward? I mean, because you're not I mean, just... the, the odd thing, it wasn't awkward because I thought it might be awkward. And, you know, it's odd for me to go back there because I lived there for five years with my family and my kids and, you know, I, for my children, it's... I mean, it's a bit odd for anyone to think of this, but, you know, it's where there was their, like, childhood home. Um, so it was odd for me to go back, and I thought it might be awkward, but it, it actually wasn't. And, um, and I remembered, and she remembered that, actually, we'd worked together many years in the shadow cabinet and the cabinet over, you know. But it wasn't, because you're, you're not just there as George Osborne, ex-Chancellor, are you? You're, you're the editor of the Evening Standard. It's a different... Was, was, was the chat off the record? Oh, getting all technical now, eh? Um, it was, uh, I think it was more as years of sort of ex-Chancellor politician chat. Yeah. I, I mean, that must be surreal, going back to Downing Street having lived there. I mean, has she changed it much? <laughs> um, am I allowed to plead the fifth? Or <laughs> no, but... Anyway, it's all going to change again, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but were you like, oh, we used to have the telly over there, actually. That's quite good. Oh, yeah. I like what you've done with the table, that's nice. Was there, there was none of that? Not much, no. Um, so, obviously, you, you spent a long time there as, as, as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, having become Shadow Chancellor at 33, I mean, you're still very young now for a politician to have kind of come out the other side. Of, how old are you now? 47. That's incredible. Do you still feel young, or do you feel like you've had your fill a bit? I feel it's on the turn. <laughs> 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 the great thing about being... You know, a sort of young shadow chancellor, and indeed quite young chancellor, was that, you know, you were always saying, got you young. You know, as you hit your mid-40s, got you young. It was fantastic, tonic, in that respect. Um, but, um, no, with looking back, uh, you know, it was sort of extraordinary being shadow chancellor at 33. And, um, and terrifying. I mean, it was, um, you know, we were just talking about it before I came on stage, that I, um, you know, I was up against Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown had killed the last six shadow chancellors, last six. And they, these were figures who, you know, were, um, like Michael Portillo and um, Michael Howard, and, you know, these were big figures in the Tory world. Oliver Letwin, our current prime minister, he, he, <laughs> he'd just been before me. So, you know, big, big figures. And, um, you know, I stood up there to face this guy at, right at the top of his powers as chancellor. And I think it's... You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I was watching earlier your very good uh, routine, and uh, you know your joke about um, resolution fourteen forty one. Yeah. You know all the other jokes they laughed at. That was just, <laughs> well, most of them they did, and then, then the, you know the audience was. You know, I mean, I think it, it's difficult to remember that the politics I grew up in as an as an MP. You know, Blair was Tony Blair was totally dominant. Yeah. Gordon Brown was totally dominant. Um, I remember. Great, wasn't it? I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, yeah, till that invasion of Iraq, but, you know, it was all going well. But the um, no, I remember there was one day it said like the Labour has got a poll lead, you know, and what was it? It was like forty-two uh, percent poll lead. It was it wouldn't be forty-two? What they're four points ahead, and they're on forty-two. Yeah. Well, they're fourteen points. No, they had a forty-two percent poll lead, 
Um, and I was the guy sent up like the next kind of kid out of the trenches to kind of face... Uh, Officer class, though. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> At a higher casualty rate, though. And, um, yeah, and it was definitely one of the kind of scariest things I did in my professional life was... People don't realise in the House of Commons... And, and in fact, most MPs don't really experience this because most MPs, as you'll notice on television, you know, when they're speaking, it's it's like half empty or it's not really agitated. Yes. You know, it's it's literally only I think the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition <coughs> and the Chancellor and the Shadow Chancellor who routinely speak to a completely full House yes. of Commons, and you you know you stand up there. And there's a room like this, and literally at this distance, you know, these guys are only a few yards, a couple of yards, you have got 350 Labour MPs shouting at you. Like, that distance is shouting at you. And, and of course, the first thing you do, because it's like you can't hear yourself and it's a natural thing, you just sort of stop talking because, like, you know, everyone's shouting and you can't be heard. And then, of course, they love that because they, like, they've smelt blood. And uh, they shout even more. And, uh, and, and that was my uh, baptism of fire. And, uh, but I just about survived. So Gordon was formidable at that point, and like you said, got rid of six shadow chancellors. Were there any, because often you'll have an informal <coughs> communication with your opposite number. And one of, the things, one of the things that was kind of said about Gordon Brown was that he really wasn't keen on David Cameron and you, and that he would sort of show it. I remember he would throw stuff across the Commons at you, yeah, yeah. papers and things. Were things different behind the scenes? No, not at all. <laughs> so, you know, they always say, um, you know, that all the politicians all go on behind the scenes and they chat. That is broadly true, but it wasn't with Gordon at all. And, um, I actually became very good friends with my sort of junior opposite number before that. It was called Ruth Kelly, and, you know, we became friends, even though we were against each other in the House of Commons. Gordon Brown, no communication whatsoever. I mean, he took the view that basically, you know, Tories were not to be spoken to and um, I personally think that was his great weakness you know if you don't understand why the other side vote as they do if you don't understand why people in this room vote Labour as a Conservative you'll never win an election if you don't understand as a Labour politician why people vote Conservative you'll never win an election my, my kind of experience and it's the politicians who get why <coughs> people are going to vote for the other team who work out then what you've got to do to change that and um, you know, Gordon Brown could never understand why people vote voted Tory, and you know, there were a string of Tory politicians who couldn't understand why people voted Labour. So, what was he like in that first exchange? Well, I got up. He was this. He'd just been re-elected. This was in two thousand five. Ancient history. Um, he'd actually come to Tony Blair's rescue in the election, so he was the guy who sort of also seemed to have triumphed in the election. And um, I got. He got. A, he got a new constituency. So he was a member for. Cody and Cowden Beef, as opposed to Dunfermline East. A bit technical, but I was looking for a sort of easy way in, you know, to a kind of, and also a nice sort of self-deprecating, polite way in. Uh, and so I said, uh, can I congratulate the Honourable General on becoming the new member for Kirk Caldy and Cowden Beef? And this Labour MP said, it's Kekodi, you southern twat. <laughs> <laughs> and that was literally... The whole House of Commons burst into laughter. Oh, and that is like, you know, I, I'm really genuinely, I was full of admiration for, the, you know, what you do in stand-up comedy and you stand here and, you know, and the audience doesn't like it. It's like, but I tell you, it's like, <laughs> but I tell you what, if, it's die, if you die in the House of Commons, 
<laughs> it is a terrible, yeah. terrible feeling. Oh it kind of, the ground opens up and it's just like, get me out of here. And you know, you know, that you've got like another half hour and, and you've lost your own side. And of course, you know, part of the politics is they're all going, well, I, you know, I always knew it was a mistake making him <laughs> the shadow <laughs> chancellor, right? You see, as you can see. Um, so yeah, no, no, it was, but it was, I actually, you wouldn't necessarily choose this, but starting in opposition, I was the longest serving shadow chancellor in British history, amazingly. And um, not something you want to be the longest serving, <laughs> but, um, but it, it's an amazing training because it forces you to have, you know, operate off your wits. You don't have a big team like the Treasury and the Civil Service and you know, the brilliant as they are, but you don't have anything like that. Um, and, and you have to, you know, every day you have to get up and think of something that is going to put you or your party in the news, in people's minds. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. The government doesn't do that. I mean, government, you know, can stay in bed for a day and the kind of world goes on and, you know, politics goes on. But in opposition, you, you really have to be kind of quick-witted, imaginative. I mean, it, it's not as stressful in a way as the main job and the, it's not as nearly as much responsibility because if you screw up, you're only screwing it up for yourself. But, but it's... Um, but it's really hard, really, really hard. One of those, it's fascinating that you say that, because that's the only other person I've ever, the only two people I've heard talk about politics like that are Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair, that sort of daily, wake up in the morning and, and constantly think about how do you win that day. And I always thought you were one of those sorts of types of people. And, and one of the things that really paid off from that uh, approach was the inheritance tax announcement when Gordon Brown was thinking about calling a general election. And that's probably the greatest example of constantly thinking about how do you outsmart and outwit someone. Did you realise when you announced you were going to cut inheritance tax that it would have such a, such a huge impact on whether there was a general election or not? Uh, no, I mean, our, you know, our backs were right up against it. I mean, again, this is ancient history. But in 2007, Gordon Brown had become the leader after Tony Blair had been Prime Minister for a decade. And everyone had thought, oh, well, you know, he's going to be useless, which he turned out to be. But that wasn't immediately obvious in the first few months. And, uh, and there's suddenly there was this huge kind of Labour lead in the opinion polls. And David Cameron and I were making mistakes. And, um, we, and, and we know now that Gordon Brown was all ready to call an election. And he'd booked the poster sites for the general election. And we went into this final party conference. We, he'd basically given us a week, the Tory party conference, to turn it around. You know, and David Cameron did that with a big speech without notes, which no one had done a conference speech. And I had this announcement about cutting inheritance tax, which was actually not really what our main kind of modernising message. We were talking about the environment and climate change and, you know, international development stuff. But I knew we needed to kind of get also the kind of Middle England fired up. Um, but I will tell you, there's... Um, I'm not sure I've told the story about you, but... Um, but yeah, no, I didn't know you were going to ask about this, but... Um, I, we had all our plans in secret of what we were going to do at this party conference. We were so stressed. We thought we were about to be hammered in this election. And we emailed them all, these plans, on the, on, just before our conference started, to my chief of staff, who was called Matt Hancock. Right? <laughs> I don't know what's happened to him since. But he... Most people don't. No. <laughs> and then... They realised that we'd said it to a guy called Mike Hancock instead. Oh, God. And Mike Hancock was a Liberal Democrat MP. Oh, yes, he was having an affair with a Russian, Russian spy. spy. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a good story about that, actually. <laughs> anyway, and, and um, it's like, oh, my God, we've like, emailed, we're already screwed, we're already, like, 
you know, Labour's already going to win. And uh, we have just emailed all of our, every, every conference announcement we've got for the coming week to a Liberal Democrat MP. Anyway, thankfully, he wasn't working on Friday because he was with his uh, Russian researcher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I will tell you a story. I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell the story, but I'll tell oh, you. Yeah. Which is, uh, so we knew she was a Russian spy. This was later. Fast forward, we are in government. You know, in the way that governments know these things. We knew she was a Russian spy. And this was, so this was a Liberal Democrat MP in his, I don't know how old he was in his 60s. He was 60s. getting on, yeah, yeah, sort of white beard. Yeah, and, yeah. and um, <laughs> they're cheering already. Very well, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so, uh, uh, he, you know, and he was having an affair with this 21-year-old Russian researcher who was working for him. And uh, so there was this discussion, should we, should we go and tell him that she's a spy? And uh, in the end, it was decided, well, we had to, because he was sitting on the Defence Committee in Parliament and all this. So, so someone was deputed to go and tell him, to which he said, yeah, of course she's a spy. Why is she sleeping with me? <laughs> oh, my God. And I remember being in Downing Street when they came back to report this. He's got no intention of stopping. <laughs> Wow. I apologise if I've breached uh, oh any confidences there, but... Oh, my God. Thankfully, we're friends with the Russians now, so that's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, because I, I remember hearing a story, and I, it must have been in a biography of your... That, um, that you and David Cameron referred to Tony Blair as the master, and that when he announced he was going, and I can't remember which way around it is, but one of you texted the other and said, we must be the last two people left who think he's brilliant or something like that, and the other one replied, now we're in business. Is that true? Well, I don't, I don't remember. Well, I certainly remember thinking. Well, what I'll say is Mike, Honkak's, Mike, Hon Mike Hancock's girlfriend gave me your phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read the message. You've read the message. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, I, I'm cer I certainly thought that Blair was a really formidable opponent. You know, I was there as a junior Tory MP. I'd seen him destroy all these Tory leaders. And... Um, and, of course, he'd won an election two or three years after the Iraq War. Everyone thinks, OK, well, you know, as we were talking earlier, it's all ended in Baghdad. But, at, you know, he'd won an election again. And, um, and, you know, frankly, the moment he went, that was a big opportunity for the Conservative Party because he had had a grip on sort of middle England voters, for, to generalise, which, uh, frankly, you know, Labour politicians ever since have struggled to get back, you know, and get back in touch with, although... You know, the Tory party at the moment is doing their best to send them their way. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about the politics of the day where it feels like, because you, you would probably self-identify as a centrist of some sort, a conservative centrist, but around the centre, where it feels like the Tory party is drifting off to the right and into nationalism and isolationism, obviously the Labour Party is deserted the centre. Is there any part of you that looks at things like the independent group and thinks, well, actually, if George Osborne was 30, he'd be more likely to get involved with them than the Tories? <laughs> Well, I, I certainly think um, I, I, I think I look at this period, and, I've, and I remember back when we were arguing about whether you know trust hospitals should have be more independent than the NHS than not, or whether you know income tax should be one percent higher. Or, and now it's like, should we leave the EU or should we have a communist state? <laughs> it's like, so it's uh, you know it feels like that world disappeared um, and disappeared incredibly quickly. And I this part of me. Maybe it's more hope than, um, you know, uh, insight. I sort of hope it hasn't. I, I, can't, I do believe that the country 
wants sensible, moderate government that doesn't have these extremes. Um, and I, d I was quite struck. I didn't go on the march uh, on Saturday you were talking about earlier, but my mother went on the march. Uh, she's got a very good record, by the way. She's, she went on the anti-Vietnam War march, the anti-Iraq march, and the uh, anti-Brexit march. So she's, she's got the tr triple, right? And, um, None of the austerity ones? No, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't as big. They weren't as big. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, I thought it was sort of interesting that the reports of the march by people who were, you know, journalists who were there said, you know, it was not full of sort of socialist worker banners and, you know, it was just, you know, very kind of straightforward, not very political people who feel very angry about what's happening. Now, if no one can capture those people, if the Labour Party can't represent those people, and I don't think Jeremy Corbyn can because he... You know, it's not what they want, and he's a, essentially a Brexit. And if the Conservative Party can't, although it's got a chance in this leadership contest to think again about it, then um, you know, then they will find a home. I mean, water flows downhill in politics. People's views find an outlet. And uh, now I don't know how it's going to be. I'm not hugely excited about the new Lib Dem leadership contest. I don't personally think the I've got, you know, I've got some admiration for the TIGs, as they're called, and the sort of difficult decision they've made. But I, I don't know, my kind of gut tells me it's not the beginning of something particularly. But, it, but there's a, definitely a space. Um, if we go ahead, I mean, of course, it's all up for grabs. If we go ahead with these European elections in uh, May, then you know, the, the, the Remain party, the Stay in Europe party, if that's created is going to get half the seats, and the other half will go to the Brexit party, and, and no one will vote Tory or Labour. And that, you know, that could be the sort of start of something as well. So now, look, I'm you know, still a member of the Conservative Party, and I would like my party to shift. The great thing about the Conservative Party is you know, it can like, move much more quickly than the Labour Party. Um, and it, it, it was described to me by William Haig as uh, a monarchy tempered by regicide. <laughs> Good data, remember that. And, uh, you know, frankly, you know, it doesn't have all the kind of committees and policy groups and whatever of the Labour Party and the left. So it can be quite easily moved in the right direction, or as I would regard it, with the right leadership. I mean, I, I often wondered about the 2010 election and felt like there was, as I think the outcome proved, there was still a sort of residual trust in Labour and there was some affection for Gordon Brown, but people were definitely, the time for a change was the slogan, and there was definitely an appetite there, there was a space there. I didn't feel that the people fully trusted that the Tories were there yet. I always thought, had Cameron had a clause four moment between seizing the leadership and the 2010 general election where he would have symbolically maybe purged the party of some really extreme Eurosceptic. I remember there being a row with Patrick Mercer, who was the MP for Newark, and he'd said something... Uh, You're was... a real political nerd, aren't you? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> obsessed. And I just thought, you know what? And I was watching it. I was working with the Labour Party at the time, yeah. thinking, Cameron ices him and, and, and kind of makes a big show, then this is kind of game on. And he didn't. And I just think, was he too timid? Were you too timid in trying to modernise the tool? Well, we tried... Um... I don't think I totally agree with that analysis. I mean, um, we tried very hard to modernise the Tory party. And we did all sorts of things which now seem kind of obvious, but we changed attitudes towards, you know, even basic things like, you know, teaching of homosexuality in schools. We made a really determined effort to get many more women uh, into Parliament as Conservative MPs. 
we made the party pro-green, we committed the party to international development assistance, lots of those things. Um, and they were pretty hard fought inside the Conservative Party at the time. Um, essentially, all of that got derailed, as indeed the whole of Western politics got derailed, by the financial crash. So that whole argument about general well-being and, you know, uh, the bigger society and the big society, you know, all of that just hit the buffers of the worst financial crash since the 1930s. And, you know, it's not just in Britain, it's in every European country, in America and elsewhere around the world, that that has totally changed our politics. There have been two big moments in my life. One was the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then the second was that financial crash. And historians will look back at our period and identify that in the same way we now think about the Great Crash of 1929 as a, like, absolutely key moment in history. Now, we were only the opposition. We weren't making all these decisions. But it essentially suddenly forced us to change what we were saying because we knew if we got into government, we'd have to do all these very difficult decisions, which, by the way, if Labour had got re-elected, they'd have had to do, as Alistair Darling's memoirs makes very clear. And, and we had this choice, which is, do you try and tell the public something about them in advance to get some mandate for doing them, or do you just pretend it's not going to happen? And we took the, let's try and tell the public something. And we actually got, went into an election saying, we're going to cut your benefits, you know, we're going to freeze public sector pay, we're going to do all these things, we're going to put up taxes. That was, like, pretty difficult to do. And I don't know whether it was a thing that sort of deprived us of the majority or whether, you know, the electoral system was never going to give the Conservatives a majority in that election. But it... Um, but all I can say is the Chancellor thereafter, it did um, mean that no one ever said of us, they did say it of, unfortunately, of the Liberal Democrats at the time, but they never said of the Conservatives, this is not what we voted for, you never told us this was going to happen. You know, I had a really strong platform for two or three years to be able to say, look, this is exactly what we said you know, we were going to do. And I never, I never got any, no one ever accused us of betrayal. They might not have liked what we did, and they might not have approved of it, and they, but, but they never said we'd sort of lied to them, which I think in politics, I mean, you know, you were joking about the politicians lying, but, you know, if you kind of lose trust fundamentally, that's when you're all at sea. It must have been a difficult period to, to come into government. Um, you know, all these grand ideas and then really no money for them, uh, and such a severe <coughs> financial situation... Uh, and I think you're right, I think the public wanted spending to um, reduce. People realised that the gap had to be narrowed, but I suppose it's about where you cut and how you cut and who you cut and all those things that then became uh, very controversial. I mean, the, the image I always think of, and I, I felt for you at the time, even though I disagreed with a lot of what you were doing, was when you were at the Paralympics in 2012. I mean, did you... And the stadium boos. And it's just such an awful thing to watch. I mean, did you go into that stadium thinking, I think when they call my name out, I might get a bit of jip? Or was it a total surprise? Um, no, I... Uh, so, you know, there's some context. So we'd had the Olympics. I'd been to quite a lot of the Olympic events. I'd gone to the Paralympics. Uh, I had uh, young children uh, at the time. And we'd take, we'd take them to some of the yeah. Olympic events, took them to the Paralympics. And uh, I, had, I a friend of mine, because I'd worked with him for years, was, a, was Seb Coe, who had organised the whole thing. And he phoned up and said, you should really present this Paralympic medal. I think it'd be great. And, you know, the government's done all these things to support the game. And they said, first rule of politics, trust your instincts. Yeah. Like most things in life. And, um, and I was like, that's not a good idea, sir. And he said, no, 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 it's a really good idea. 
Then when I got there, the uh, chief executive of Sainsbury's was presenting a medal and he got sort of mildly booed. <laughs> and I, was like, <laughs> I was like, oh fuck, this is like... And I should have then, again, lesson two, trust your instincts. I, should have, I said, maybe I should just pull out of this thing. And they said, no, no, it'll be fine. Um, and then I went out, and actually, the, my real—I'm not. You think I'm making this up, but it's not it, it, true. It, the, my my real thought was my kids were like there, right on the side. On the, they were on the sort of touchline. They'd kind of been for the presenting of the medal, been allowed to stand in the um, stadium. They were really excited. I can't, I can't remember exactly how old they were, but they were kind of eleven and nine. You know, pretty young. And um, uh, the other person I felt sorry for was the guy I was giving the medal to. <laughs> was this, uh, he was booing. <laughs> Like looking completely bemused, they thought they were booing him. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember you kind of laughing it off. At well, the time. I well, what are you supposed to do? Well, I suppose it, my it, dear, I don't when I know you know I'm a Chelsea season to go, but I don't now. I don't engage in the booing when, the, <laughs> when one of the players screws up on the pitch. Right, but um, I think it was, you know, it kind of a. It, I knew there would always, there's always going to be a moment when. It's the chance exchequer. They're not supposed to be like super popular figures, and I was doing like uh, difficult things. Um, but we got, I, you know, we got reelected. I guess is the way. I'll tell you the other thing about, you know, which is absolutely true. And I, I kind of came to, you know, be a little bit sort of have a quite a sort of tough view about the public, which was this: that every time uh, I cut something, it was like, oh, he's cut something. And then when I tried to increase taxes, that was when it really kicked off, <laughs> right? So all people say to me, oh, I'd be happy to pay a bit more tax. You, well, until you're actually asked, <laughs> right? Until you're actually asked, you know, oh, that little hot pasty, well, would you, do you mind if we, <laughs> do you mind if we fund the NHS by kind of taking, you know, 20p off you when you're, you know, um, it was, uh, you know, when we, every, all, the, all the, re <laughs> all the real, Prob political problems I had were, were over tax rises. Uh, a VAT increase, the pasties increase. I tried to tax. You know, it's, it's the case in this country that very, there are some very rich people who have never paid income tax. Never. Right? Everyone here, I suspect, pays income tax. Right? I, and, they, you pay, and there are some people who never pay income tax because they, they arrange their affairs that they give their income, all their earned income to charity and then they take money out of the money they're accumulating in the bank. And I introduced this thing. It was called a tycoon tax. Nick Clegg came up with the idea. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. And, uh, and then we launched it. And about three days later, it was the charities tax. And I had, like, Greenpeace and, you know, Shelter and, um, you know, Macmillan's um, uh, Castle, all of them marching against my tax that was going to make billionaires in this country pay a little bit of income tax. And at that point, I said, you know what? It's, I got quite cynical, frankly, and I thought the tough things are always raising taxes, and the public say they you know, want more. They even say, they, you know, even if they don't say I'll pay more tax, they want the rich to pay more tax. And when I tried to do that... <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, anyone who does the job as Chancellor, you're like the person in the family who says, you know, everyone says, well, we want to go on holiday there, we want to go on holiday there, we want like a new bike and a new car, and, you know, the guy or the girl who says, I'm sorry, you know, we can't afford everything. And it is, it's an amazingly interesting job with a huge responsibility, but it's got that element that you're the person who has to say no or fight, you know, and that's difficult. 
You mentioned there it, briefly the deeply inequitable pasty tax, um, <laughs> which I would have marched. I'd have marched against, but I was too fat. Um, it, it, you do pay VAT on fish and chips and hot chicken, just in case you think I'm obsessed about this issue. And, and it came about whether the things were staying hot or cooling down, and then. Is it true there were genuine discussions about, depending on what temperature, you know, if it was piping hot, you pay 20%, sort of lukewarm, 15%, <laughs> stone cold, 0%. Yeah, we were trying to get, when we were introducing the tax, do you know, the um, sort of failure, but uh, the, uh, we never knew it would apply to pasties. It was designed to get at, essentially the supermarkets had started to introduce um, hot food counters, yes. them, right? And if you go to your high street takeaway shop, like your you know, hot chicken, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, yeah. or a fish and chip shop, you do pay VAT. Yeah. But if you went to Sainsbury's or Tesco's, who are basically offering something similar, you didn't pay VAT. Oh, really? So our thing was, let's introduce VAT on those things and get the yeah. supermarkets. But unfortunately, pasties, <laughs> it turned out, <laughs> fell into the, kind of, for some reason, the supermarket thing, because they were not cooked on the premise. So it was, it was, um, it, I remember... Uh, uh, Glad to see my brain's full of all this useful. <laughs> oh, and mine, I remember, I remember... By the way, you know, you did, we did read, but two years later, the, I think the, the kind of riskiest thing that David Cameron and I did on the tax front was the, we did a tax on sugary drinks. Right? And people said to us, our political advisors, you know, very smart people, they said, you're absolutely mad. You've been crucified on the pasties. You're going to go and tax like Pepsi and Coca-Cola. And, you know, and, and we had all this evidence from the government and the like, chief medical officer and all this, that like, people were dying of obesity. And, and they said, you're going to have the sun on against you and the mail against you. And, they're gonna get big. And, um, and I remember we were in the room. It was just David and me. And we went, come on, let's go for it. And when the advisors come back, and, you what? You fucking agreed to tax on Coca-Cola. Well, good luck to you, right? And that amazing. It's funny about politics because we were so prepared for the mother of all rows. We had all this, unlike the pasties, we were kind of ready for this one. And there was no row at all. It kind of just, everyone, yeah, that's a good idea. Well done. I mean, that was, was like, politics is weird like that. It's just a fundamentally... There are, it's unpredictable, which is why, by the way, it's incredibly interesting and why I guess many people in this room are sort of fascinated by it because it's, it's just got this totally sort of, I wouldn't say random, because I don't think they are random, but difficult to follow events or difficult to foresee events. Uh, obviously, the, 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 the uh, sugar tax was in your final budget. Pasty tax was kind of earlier on. <laughs> I remember an exchange at Select Committee with... Um, <laughs> <laughs> You, you and the Labour MP, and I think it was John Mann, but I can't entirely be sure. And he said to you, when was the last time you had a Greg's? And obviously, he was trying to make a wider point. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, it sort of became this silly thing where David Cameron was then being asked, when was the last time you had a pasty? I mean, had you ever had a pasty? Did, it, you know, but did you think, oh, maybe I should lie and say... They said, well, they found all the photos of me eating pasty. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a, I, d I don't mean this in a kind of, I don't mean, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's going to come out wrong with this sort of lazy journalism. It's, I don't mean it like that. It's just a kind of, I think it's very legitimate for journalists and indeed, in that case, opposition politicians to kind of ask politicians about their motives and to 
try and get into you know, whether they are in touch and whether they understand what they're doing. I think those are all very legitimate lines of inquiry. But the interview where you're asked the price of a loaf of bread or the price of a pint of milk or whatever, and you know, they're kind of gotcha questions. Yeah. Um, and occasionally I've interviewed BBC presenters on stage, actually quite a few of them, and I always try them out just to prove what a pointless thing is. And they, of course, haven't got a clue, even though you know, they were briefed to ask the question six months earlier. I think it's a kind of cheap trick. And, um, it, 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 and it, I remember you know, sometimes you get it right, bluntly, and they go, well, no, actually, it's 5p more. You know, you, you know nothing. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, you know, it's... Because it, anyway. I thought he was trying to make a point about... He was trying to make a point about... About me being in I touch, thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I thought... What I always felt was odd about the coalition. How do you say class? Class. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Class. Yeah. I was thinking about class. Um, and I always felt, until you did that, that I, I, was, I felt for you a little bit because. <laughs> I always thought you were sort of unfairly the face of kind of the elite Tory set or whatever. It felt that you drew more ire than David Cameron did, and he was the Prime Minister. I thought there was a kind of major obsession with the fact that you... I think were... things have levelled up since. <laughs> <laughs> they have, but did, did, you, did you sense that? Did you feel like you were being kind of... I didn't really... I, you know, well, like, you get into... Uh, like, I mean, it's not true, not just true of politics. It's true of many things in life. You can kind of get into a kind of hole and then you, you, know, you just sort of refuse to climb out of the hole. And um, in the end of... I think in the end of 2012, so about halfway through the period as Chancellor... Um, you know, I wasn't really travelling around the country much. It's much easier not to, you know, you just sit in the treasury and you don't have to go out to the, you know, the real world. Um, and then I just thought this was like absolutely hopeless. You've got to get out there. And, and I kind of made a really big conscious effort to change, to be much more, to sort of get out of the funk, right, and get out there and sell what we were doing. Because I was absolutely convinced, and indeed at the time, the evidence was, despite the kind of Paralympic Stadium, the public basically agreed with what we were doing. And indeed, right up until the point they re-elected us several years later, right? That they knew, that, you know, politicians who came up and said, you know, there are no problems in this country, we can spend as much as we like, forget, you know, these people are, you know, selling you a lie. Th that was not true. I, you know, in today's politics, the politicians who sell you the lie are being exposed. So... I, I always, and then and personally, I, it would, took a kind of big effort to say, it became, you know, sort of parodied in the end with the kind of yellow high-vis vest, which, you know, those people in Paris nicked off with an idea. But, um, the, uh, you know, that was sort of the expression of, I'm out there, and if you want to ask me a question, I'm on the road, right? And you can, and, I, you know, for me, it worked. We talked about David Cameron there and things levelling up. I mean... You were opposed to a referendum. It was in the Tory manifesto. I think I got that one right. <laughs> how, how forceful were you in trying to not have a referendum in the 2015? Well, the discussion was much earlier. It was in 2012, really, um, because the commitment to a referendum was announced at the beginning of 2013. Um, I, I made my case uh, in the privacy of the in a circle of the government. Uh, and um, we had always swapped it. We talked about the opposition and, you know, these were, we were a team. We were a proper team. No one ever found 
this will never be the case again, I suspect. You know, the, the relationship between the Prime Minister and Chancellor was so strong, people didn't know where we disagreed because we did that in private. Um, and, uh, and we worked as a team, and the team view was, we can all have our arguments in private, but then we go out and no one ever finds out, even in this super leaky political world where we disagree. And if you compare it to now, where literally people text from the cabinet meeting <laughs> what's going on, you know, people did not know about the disagreement. And the disagreement was on whether to have a referendum. And, you know, I was essentially outvoted, um, you know, not we had a vote, but you know, it was, I was outnumbered in the yeah. discussion. Uh, it, it, curiously, the only other person who was against having a referendum was Michael Gove. And um, <laughs> bizarre kind of twist there. But it, uh, and, um, uh, and then the Tory party wanted one. Um, and people were up for it. The newspapers were all keen on it. The, uh, when it was voted on eventually in the House of Commons, every, pretty much every Labour MP voted for it uh, in the end. Uh, so it became a kind of, it had become a kind of fetish in British politics, this having a referendum. And a series of, of, of prime ministers, Tony Blair, John Major, uh, before us, had promised referendums on different aspects of the EU, whether we join the Euro, whether we join the Lisbon Treaty. And everyone had popped to think way back to Harold Wilson that, you know, if you can't solve it in your own party and your politician and, and in Parliament, you have a referendum on Europe. So this idea had had a currency. There had been a referendum party in British politics. Um, and it was, of course, as we're discovering now, just, a, just an excuse for the fact that the political system couldn't solve this problem, or rather no one party could solve the problem. Um, and so the one thing everyone could agree on is let's ask the people. Um, so I totally understand why it came about, but I was against having one. And then when the referendum was held, you know, I threw absolutely everything and ultimately essentially my political career into trying to stop the country voting to leave. You said in uh, interview this week with Alistair Campbell that you could feel yourself spending your political capital during that campaign. At any point of the, at that campaign, until the very end, did you think actually this is lost and I'm gone? I was very, I was really nervous about it, and I, you know, I have witnesses. <laughs> I know that's really easy after the event, but I did say to my family, uh, "I think we're going to be leaving this apartment pretty soon," because uh, I thought we were going to. I certainly thought it was there was a, a you know, pretty reasonable chance we were going to lose. I'm not saying I knew we were going to lose, but I was really nervous. It was partly because I just fought a general election which we had won. And although you can get all the polling and everything, the truth is, like, like, again, like people in this audience, you, you, you react to what people say to you. And in that general election, I was coming across a load of surprising people who were going to vote Conservative. And I thought, I don't know, this is working. You can tell when you're doing lots of interviews that the message is you know, connecting. And, and, and that was working, that w had worked just in the previous election. And then a year later in the referendum, all these surprising people, you know, like my uncle, my aunt, <laughs> were going to vote for Brexit and no. my friends and people. I've, and then these people, you know, I just remember a visit to the, I mean, now kind of quite a famous example, but, you know, then I went up to the Sunderland, the Nissan plant in Sunderland, and just all these people were voting for Brexit in the plant. And I was like, but they're going to, I'm not going to build cars, you know, new models here anymore, you know, and don't you understand that? And, and I, so I was kind of quite gloomy and farmers, and I was like, but they're going to take all the farming subsidies away from you. 
no, no, they're not. I was like, mm, I don't know, I've been Chancellor, I think you're fine. NHS or farmers. You know, but um, so, you know, I, I, I always had quite a bad um, feeling about it. I thought we might just nick it. But I also thought, you know, in the, the just winning was going to be a, I mean, obviously, we've been vastly better for the country, but for the Conservative Party, for my position in the Conservative Party, <coughs> for the Cameron Premiership, it was curtains. Um, and I had I'd sort of taken a deliberate decision to just keep, I thought as Chancellor Exchequer, I can actually move the dial. There aren't many people in a campaign who can really shift maybe one or two percent just by a kind of relentless economic message. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought it was worth doing, even if it cost me you know, all this support that I had kind of carefully nurtured for years in the Tory party and built up as a kind of, you know, an operation, essentially. Um, but I don't, you know, I really don't regret it. I kind of do sometimes think, well, maybe I should have you know, taking the lead of some other cabinet ministers and said, fuck all during the campaign. Um, but, um, but, what? but, you know, ultimately that ended in tears too. So. <laughs> and she was called uh, during the campaign, apparently, the submarine, Theresa yeah. May. Did you see her very often or? Ooh, I mean, no other reason. Look, she, you know, she, she made, she did make some interventions in, uh, and make the case for Remain, but, I, you know, as the Chancellor, it's a different position. You, if you, particularly with my relationship with David Cameron, who's still a very good friend of mine, if you, know, if you just sort of say, I'm sitting this out, or I'm going to sort of pro, you know, indicate I might actually be sympathetic to the other side, then you've really sort of sunk it for everyone. Uh, and I honestly believe then, and I honestly believe now, this is just the worst decision the country has made in its, in its I say modern history, but I'm, I'm, you know, I can't really think worst decisions in medieval history either and um, <laughs> it, uh, it's it's uh, just a, a terrible terrible decision for our economy but more importantly our place in the world our voice in the world you know our ability to influence events um, and it is look it's I mean we I'm not sure when this is goes out as a podcast but as of right now it's still up for grabs right it's it's still not a done deal. And uh, it's absolutely worth fighting for the country just pausing and reconsidering whether this is really the decision it wants to take because there is no going back. It is a one-way door. Uh, and you know, I totally understand why some people very, feel very strongly that we should go through that door. But look at all the people who've changed their minds on things in the last few years. It's, you know, indeed in the last few hours. Uh, let's just uh, let's just let's just you know think about whether this is the right. Now we know what what it looks like. Now we know that some of the fantasies are never going to be realised. If you still want to go ahead with this, fine. But pause and think. You still have a, a huge amount of influence as editor of the Evening Standard. In terms of like, what's the role involved? What are the hours like? Like, do you write the front page headlines? Do you write every editorial? How involved are you in it? Um, you know, I, yes, I wanted to give up on a world of spin and fake news and fiddled expenses, so I became a journalist. So was a, um, I love it. It's really fun. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great job. Um, I'd always, I'm a sort of was a journalist, you know, monkey. I wanted to be a journalist when I left university, uh, but no one gave me a job. And um, 
And so I was really sort of lucky to find this role as an editor. Often politicians get, ex-politicians get trapped on, you know, it's very well paid, so I'm not complaining, but the kind of speaker circuit where you're talking about all the things you used to do and, you know, you're, but, but it, there you go. Someone tried to clash you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so to, 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 this is a new profession, new great team at the Evening Standard. It's a paper I've always read because I grew up in London and I love, and it's actually it's politics was before I arrived, very similar to mine. Um, so, um, yeah, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, it's an interesting, it's a kind of daily, you know, up in the morning early, what's our front page? You know, what are we, what, what's the news today? How we, quite often it may be obvious what the news is, how are we gonna do it in an interesting way? We're there first because we hit the streets in the middle of the afternoon. And we're a mass market paper. You know, we produce, we, we print a million copies of this paper a day. Um, so we are not a broadsheet, which you know, might have a very influential sort of elite audience. We've got to try and make sure that ordinary folk going home on the tube, a uh, very young audience for a newspaper because it's free, um, very ethnically diverse for newspapers, um, you know, what, are, what can we interest with them? And you've got that just classic daily dilemma of what do you think people should know and what do you think people want to read? Yeah. Um, and, I, and it's interesting, I took a, you know, I took a sort of punt, essentially, that people wanted to hear more about Donald Trump. Traditionally, the paper didn't do international politics and it was much, you know, more London-focused. Um, and we started putting Donald Trump on the front page and things he'd said. And, you know, of course, actually, people were fascinated and engaged and interested. And this Brexit, I've, quite often it's like, oh, we're going to put Brexit on the front page again. And when we do, the, the, we can tell how many people pick it up every day. And, uh, you know, it goes off, it flies off the, 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 the bins where they're, they're stored in the tube stations. Uh, how, how difficult was it to come to a newspaper as an editor with, with no journalistic career? If only because of the relationship with the people under you. Like, what's the resistance? <laughs> Just saying, oh, working with this bloke, he hasn't got a clue what he's doing. I mean, that might have been true at the Treasury. Well, I said, look, you know, Boris Johnson's made such a good transition the other way, I should uh, do this. Transitioning. Yeah. Um, I don't know. um, I think to begin with, I wouldn't say they were nervous. I just thought they were like, oh, my God, what is this? We've got, like, George Osborne coming in the room and, you know, we've been writing about him and putting him on the front page and for, you know, years. And Good way to get that stopped, actually. Yes. <laughs> so I discovered, yeah. Um, but it, um, I think what I did was I, I tried... I, in fact, the first day I just thought, OK, I'm going to learn about this and I'm going to take a back seat and watch it for a bit. But, you know, immediately it's like, I know actually I have a view on what this front page should be and I have a view on... <clears throat> what the picture should be and what the editorial should be and you know what the co- cartoon should be and so on and um, uh, and so right from day which is how I've been chancellor and you know I was pretty involved and um, and on the kind of detailed things and and with the newspaper that is I, I, the more I do it the more I believe you've in the end a newspaper has to have a kind of identity you've got lots of these great journalists writing about sport or arts or business or news um but if the whole thing they're all around you know different topics if the whole thing's going to have an identity the editor's got to try and give it an identity i mean it comes with an identity because of its history but the editor's got to take it on and in the end the best way to do it is like what is the newspaper i'd like to read um 
you know, and I, you know, I, there's a sort of trashy element of me. I want to read what about Love Island, and I want to know about the Kardashians, and I want to know, but I also want to know what's going on with Brexit. And I think most people are like that. I, I think this kind of, it's not a world where, you know, you, can, you want to read the opera review, but you don't want to read anything about, you know, reality TV. I think there are, you can do both. And most people, certainly, you know, my generation, I think are kind of quite heterogeneous in that respect. Uh, you've developed uh, <coughs> roles since um, uh, leaving uh, office, uh, but you, you'd worked for so many Conservative leaders uh, prior to becoming Shadow Chancellor. You'd, you'd worked for, for William Hague, and that was where this sort of young team was, was incubated. You and Debbie Cameron, Daniel Finkelstein, and other people, talented young Turks coming through. Um, you also then worked for other leaders that you might not necessarily have agreed with. You worked um, for Ian Duncan Smith. Um, what was that like? Because it felt like Tory modernisation had sort of been, well, frankly, rejected and the Tory yeah. party was turning rightwards in the face of New Labour. Yeah, and then the public rejected us. So um, it was, I used to, uh, there was a period when I had to come in and help him with Prime Minister's questions, Ian, because he was being murdered by Tony Blair every week. Um, <laughs> And so the, the idea was like, let's get a bright bunch of team, a bright bunch of new <clears throat> MPs in to help Ian. And uh, so at seven o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, I would turn up with David Cameron, new MP for West Oxfordshire, and Boris Johnson. And the three of us, uh, and in fact, there was another MP called Paul Goodman. Um, oh, Conservative. Who, 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 yeah, and the four of us would do... <laughs> This sort of online world, isn't it? Yeah. and uh, and yeah, and we did. Um, we would prep Ian for Prime Minister's questions, um, and essentially the only question he could ask that Tony Blair wouldn't kill was um, to ask the Prime Minister some obscure fact, which we were pretty certain he wouldn't know. So it was like, you know, how many illegal illegal asylum seekers have? So that was the kind of theme of the. Duncan Smith uh, leadership. How many illegal <laughs> asylum seekers, you know, have not been deported in the last month? <laughs> you know, and, and Tony Blair for a while was like, oh, well, I don't know. Ah, he said, no, yeah. not on top of your brief, um, ironically. And, um, uh, but then, uh, then there was this, uh, this Labour MP who, just as he was about to say that, went, how many? And that was his question, how many? And that point... The whole House Commons laughed because it was sort of, you know, showed you he was sort of overly prepped. Um, and uh, that was that. anyway, thank God we haven't heard from him since. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever say to him, look, Ian, I, I know I'm a young MP, but do we, does it always have to be about illegal immigrants? Why, why, can't, why can't we ask about other stuff? Actually, to be fair, Ian then, um, I don't know why I'm being fair to him, but anyway, to be, to be fair to Ian, he, you know, he was developing an argument which subsequent you know about help you know the NHS and the Conservative Party trying to understand less advantaged communities and so um, so it wasn't always about that but it um, you know the, the real denouement was when he tried to force us as a party to vote against gay people being allowed to adopt children uh, so this was really late I think one of the interesting sort of stories of Britain is how late in the day you know, homosexuality is not just legalised in Britain in the 1960s, but sort of accepted as, as a, an acceptable thing for people to be in public life. It was not until the late 1990s that the first Member of Parliament in Britain 
uh, came out as gay, Chris Smith. Yeah. Um, 1990s, it had been legalized for you know 30 years. And anyway, amazingly, while I was still, you know, so I was an MP when there was this big row about whether gay people should be allowed to adopt children. We now take it for granted. Um, and Ian Doug Smith said to the Conservative Party, you know, we are voting against this. And uh, three of my kind of group of new MPs, of which there were maybe about 40, only three of us rebelled. And it was interesting. We were all brand new to Parliament. And it was David Cameron, me, and Boris Johnson. We were three rebels on that. Uh, early vet. And it was an early sign, I think, of a generational shift in the Conservative Party and a realisation that we were deeply out of touch with our country and, and deeply illiberal in our instincts. And w when he was having this conversation, would you say to him, Ian, what, what is your problem with it? Like, <laughs> would you ever say, like, just, don't get me started, it's just, oh, it's the way I was brought up. Or, like, what was his, what was his rationale? I think it was, um, the Conservative, you know, the Conservative Party, it's, you know, often when you lose, um, and you're, you remember this was a party that had been losing now for several, for quite a few years against Tony Blair. Mm. Having had, to, you know, during my childhood, this amazing success under Margaret Thatcher. Um, I think when you lose, you sort of things reinforce each other, don't they? You become suspicious of each other. It becomes factionalised. You kind of, you, you head further and further to your base. And that's happening to both parties, you know, at the moment. I mean, there's a tragedy going on in the Labour Party. And... And there's a tragedy going on in the Conservative Party. I mean, the, as I said, I think the Conservative problem is more easily rectified just because of the way the party's set up. But um, they're both, you know, well, can you imagine this Conservative government legalising gay marriage as the government I was part of did? You know, no. I, no. So, um, and that's not, you know, we'll look at the around about um, overseas aid, you know, where we got the country spending 0.7% of its national income on overseas aid is one of the things I'm so very proud to have been part of. Uh, and now that's, you know, all up for grabs again and everyone saying, oh, we should be you know, spending the money at home. So um, you've got to keep fighting for these things. I mean, it's one of the things, I guess what I've learned and is you, one of the reasons I still, you know, I'm a newspaper editor now, I still come on you know, and do things like this with you is, I think you've got to go and fighting for these things and making the argument for them and not assuming that these victories are won. And, and if you, you know, the people who took Britain into the European Union in the 1970s won the referendum to be in it, constructed the single market in the 1980s, you know, would never have dreamt that decades later we'd be on the verge of coming out. You know, they would have assumed that argument was won. And if I have one kind of massive regret in my political career, it's that I did not make a stronger argument for the European Union throughout. I was, it's not that I was the first to jump on the kind of bash Brussels bandwagon, but you know, I can't point to the speech I made seven or eight years ago extolling the virtues of you know, what Michael Herstein called the greatest peace project <laughs> the world has ever known. Uh, and, uh, and no one did. And it wasn't just me or David Cameron. You know, the Labour politicians didn't do it. Even the Liberal Democrat politicians didn't really do it. You know, we just didn't buy. And so when it got to the referendum, there was just not out there in the country a group of people who were really committed to the EU membership. There was a very small, you know, sort of essentially metropolitan elite group who kind of understood. But, you know, that was why the campaign ended up being very focused on the economic aspects of, you know, you leave and you'll be poorer. Because we couldn't appeal to European solidarity or 
peace in Europe or bigger voice for Britain in the world, people didn't buy it. Like large swathes of the population did not buy it at all, including those who ended up voting Remain. And the, one of the amazing sort of side effects of the referendum, if you like, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but one of the consequences of the referendum is there's suddenly in Britain this sort of energised, large, pro-European movement. I mean, who would have dreamt that the European flag would be cool. <laughs> you know, who would have dreamt that people would want to fly it from their houses and, you know, put it on their backpacks when they go to school as school kids? And, you know, that is, and that, and that, all that, you know, which the march and the petition that the people have signed to revoke, you know, all of that is, now, I, I'd, I'd like, you know, the sort of flip things to say, or oh, it's all come too late. But no, it's still, these things are contested, right? The people who wanted, Brexit, oh, by the way, you know, the actual politicians who wanted it were a tiny minority. They managed to get a load of other fellow travellers in the end. But you know, throughout my time in politics, they were a tiny minority, and they banged away at it. They just kind of kept on bang, bang, bang. And people didn't really stand up to them and challenge their arguments. And now you know, they are the establishment. It's the mainstream view of the British political class that we should leave the EU. That's what they're all going to be voting on tonight. Right? Not they'll be voting on different forms of how you leave, but there won't be that many who vote to say no, we shouldn't leave at all. The Labour leader wants to leave, the Conservative leader wants to leave. You know, now they're the establishment. Right, okay. Well we can be the rebels. Uh, have you signed the petition to revoke Article fifty? I haven't got around to it. <laughs> I just remembered when you, I've written an editorial saying it's quite a good idea, but I haven't actually signed the petition. But you know, you've got to keep the momentum. You know, you can't all sign at once. No, that's right. Um, you, know, you, you do need to get on with that. I think um, most of the <laughs> most of the Osborne family have. Um, so the two people I want to ask you about. Firstly, David Cameron. You're still good friends with him. How is he coping? I was just on the phone to him. I said, I, um, I'm sorry, I'm about to come and do this. He said, I've got to ring off, I'm getting out of the car. Because I, I, mean, I would love to have him here. Um, mm. Do you think he would do it? Yeah, he might well do, yeah. If his you know, good friend recommends it. So we'll see how the rest of the evening goes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask him which friend he was going to ask. But, uh, so it, it, because I think there was a lot of fondness for David Cameron until the referendum. And in a way, he's, it's a smaller version of kind of what Blair went through, and the promise that people kind of liked. And it's, he was never adored in the same way that Blair, he never got those sort of majorities. And he probably isn't going through what the vilification that Blair's been through. But it's a, on, a, on a smaller equilibrium, he's on that seesaw of having been really liked and seen as a positive person, and now he's kind of a, for want of a better phrase, he's kind of a, a, a baddie. How is he emotionally dealing with that? Well, I, I think the first thing is that um, it is all how all the premierships end. They all think they can get out in some different way. David always thought he could go on his own terms, announce he's going. Everyone said, that's a mistake. Prime ministers don't do that. And, uh, you know, he thought he could do it on his own terms. But, you know, if you look at Theresa May tonight, David Cameron... Uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, John Major, Margaret Thatcher, you know, they, it always ends in a... doesn't mean... I, I don't think that's that sort of saying that all political careers end in failure is true, because I, you know, personally... I mean, <laughs> you might tell me otherwise, but I don't, I, don't, I don't look back on my political career as a failure. I think, you know, I was unbelievably lucky to be Chancellor Exchequer. Um, but... They always end, you know, in a mess because that's when the country wants a new prime minister. They've either voted for one or the, or the parties bulldy down. Um, 
So, you know, that's how it ended for David. And of course, you know, he'll always have to explain, as, you know, as he will, um, why he felt it the right thing to have a referendum. Um, and, but it was not, and it's easy in politics to personalize those decisions. Yes. You know, well, the Brexit fuck up is all Theresa May's fault. Well, that's clearly not the case because the public have told the politicians to do a completely impossible thing, which is like leave the European Union without in any way damaging us, and that's not possible. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, we all want different things. And, you know, with this referendum, as I pointed out, everyone was voting for it. All the MPs, Labour and Conservative, ended up voting for it. Um, and uh, people have been talking about it for years, and there have been petitions in national media. So it's not you know, solely David Cameron's decision. But if you're the Prime Minister, it's a very important job. It carries a huge amount of responsibility with it and a huge amount of power. I've seen it very close up. Of course, you bear the primary responsibility of explaining what you're doing and why things happen. So he will always have to do that, but he is happy to do that. He's got a very good, um, you know, he can explain himself perfectly well uh, why he took the decisions he took and why he stands by them. Uh, and uh, he will explain them all in a, his excellent memoirs, which are coming out in September, very reasonably priced. <laughs> um, I'm sure once he's on the book tour, he'll come and stand or sit on this stage. Oh, I'd love to tell him up because he was, he was a great hope, I think, for... I just, you know, there are politicians I like that I would never vote for. And I just thought, in general, when he was first on the scene, I just thought he kind of was making a positive contribution to politics. I liked the way he did things. And I kind of felt for... What was really odd was... Uh, I really shouldn't admit this, but the day that he left, I remember listening to it... I was listening to Prime Question Time on Five Live on my phone on Euston Road, and I remember his voice kind of going at his last Prime Minister's Questions. And oh, when he left and he was outside down the street, and he said, I love my country... And his sort of voice went like that, and I thought, oh, fuck, man. <laughs> you, you choked up a bit. I did choke up a bit. I never voted for him, but I just thought, oh, God. That, it's a shame that it's ended like this, because there was potential for... It does to... always end like that, yeah. If someone Gordon Brown left, I was like, oh, man. And you just see that little bit of them, and you go, oh... You know, I, I feel, uh, maybe I'm fucking sad, but like... <laughs> I always had a soft spot for David Cameron, despite the fact I never voted for him. And I think, I think a lot of people felt like that until perhaps the referendum... And even, to be fair to him, you know what? The line that I really liked um, was after the referendum, when it's him against Corbyn, and he says, we all have to take responsibility for our roles in that defeat. I'm paying the price. So it might be in my party's interest that he continues to sit there, but it's not in the country's interest. For heaven's sake, man... Go, <laughs> and I—I I think it's the only time I've given a standing ovation in my bedroom. <laughs> so, uh, I think a picture of your life is emerging here. <laughs> the select committees you follow in detail. Oh, yeah. The prime minister's questions on the phone on the Euston Road. The standing ovations—that's what you call it in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I did. I, 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 I really hope that you would come because I think there still is a lot of goodwill towards him despite all this. And I, I, in a way, I never want... Because I respect politicians and the decisions they have to take, and they are in impossible positions a lot of the time, I would never want a leader of a country or, or a senior... Po or any politician to feel that they had to hide away as a result of a decision or that, that the atmosphere was too I don't hostile. Think he, I don't think he thinks he has to hide away. Uh, and, you, you know, you will see a lot of him later this year. It's, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, I think when you kind of leave the stage, I certainly felt this, you know, it's taken me a while to say, OK, I'm going to go back and start doing interviews again and, do, you know, because you sort of feel, you know, the country, they've heard enough, 
and and you've left the stage and that and so you f you feel like they don't want to hear from you anymore and then um, to come back to my earlier point i kind of took a view if i'm not going to go out there and make these arguments about you know partly why we think what we did was right on the economy and austerity and all that um but also now when so many really big decisions are being taken about our country's future then who is you know and you know, that's how democracy works. People have got to go out there and make these arguments or else they're made by people you don't agree with. And, and so I, I personally, I've been through that um, in the last maybe six months, um, whereas I previously would have said no to everything, including, you know, an invitation like this. Um, but I think he, you know, he, he's, you know he's, he, he will be out there talking about, um, you know, what, what he did and, and why he thinks it was the right thing and what he thinks about the future. Uh, later this year. Excellent. So we've got some, some quick audience questions. So uh, indicate clearly, please, if I can ask the one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers. I'll try and get around as many people as I can. Uh, there's a, a very big hand up over there. Oh, no. I think that's your member's staff. Is it? Can I just ask? Oh, oh where uh, are we? Up here. Up oh, here. just wait. You've got to wait for the microphone. You've got to wait for the microphone. So uh, we'll bring it up. Is there anyone in this section that would like to ask a question? Yes, right over there in the corner. Have we got a microphone? Is it not working? We just had an update on the news. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Oh, give us the news, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Is it on? Yeah. Hi, George. So, news has just come through that um, none of the proposed options um, tonight has any clear backing from any of the MPs. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? These people are wankers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very... Uh, Direct comment from the front row. That's, um, These the people are wankers. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you make of that? Well, thanks, Zoe, uh, for that update. Um, I um, it doesn't totally surprise me because um, I've seen it before where you know, it's easier to be against everything rather than for something. But what you have seen in this Brexit process is that partly you have to sort of go through rejecting everything first and then... So I suspect this is going to come back again and again. Uh, but I guess it adds to the um, farce of the day. It does indeed. Uh, there was a hand up over in the, in the far corner. If you just keep it raised, we'll get the microphone to you. And let us know your name as well. Um, so here we go. Hi, this is Will. Um, so we're just about to have a Conservative leadership election again, uh, and I wondered who you thought should be the victor in that contest. Mm. I think it should be... Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I... Look, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm basically, I'm not going to answer the question. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. but I would... Uh, it's got to be the person who essentially makes the argument for reconnecting the Conservative Party back to the modern world. Um, I suppose there are two different questions within the question, aren't there? Like, who do you think is the who do you think would win it, just as a kind of betting person, and who would you prefer? So, in terms of who the sort of favourites are, I mean, just in terms of Boris, it could could he win it? How really knowing yeah, the Of course, he could win it. Yes, yeah. yeah. And do you think? The, I mean, in terms of his support amongst the MPs and then his support amongst the party, I mean, is he is he more popular with the party than he is? With the parliamentary party? Um, well, he probably is at the moment, but these things can change dramatically in leadership contests. You know, I, so I ran David Cameron's leadership contest, I worked on William Hague's leadership contest. 
So when David Cameron, a week before he had his sort of big triumph at the Tory party conference, if you're in, he was the 33 to 1 outsider for the Tory leadership and the fifth ranked person in the contest. And William Hague was 66 to 1 when he in that contest. Uh, so, you know, it can often go to the outside and the dynamics can change quite dramatically during the contest. Because, you know, it's really the first time uh, you are put on a stage and you have to explain who you are, what your philosophy is, and why you think you're the right person to lead the party. And, and the Conservative Party, you know, I was an MP in the North of England for many years in, in the Tatton Conservative Association. You know, we had over a thousand local members. And, you know, they are not, despite the kind of caricature, sort of, you know, ideological nut jobs. They are, they are very, you know, most of them are very sensible. They're not ideological nut jobs. No, they're very, they're very sensible, kind of quite patriotic people who kind of care about their local community, who want to get involved in politics and want to serve on the council and the parish council. <coughs> you know, that is the vast bulk of party memberships. And, uh, and so... They are persuaded by reasonable arguments from reasonable people. Okay, are there any questions in this section of the room? Yes, there's a, there's a hand up over there. Do let you know your name and uh, a, a quick question, a quick answer would be uh, appreciated. It's Matt. Um, so you were talking before about the people that supported idea or IDS was going for the disadvantaged communities. And then also the people who voted for Brexit from Nissan. How do you think politics needs to change to really talk to these people and bring them on board? Yeah, I d um, that's a very good question. I think um, uh, in the end, I, I don't believe there's some fundamentally different way of organising the economy of this country uh, so that you know people get vastly more money and there's vastly more for public services and whatever. You know, we, we have a democracy in an island of 65 million people and broadly speaking, the streets are safe, the, you know, the country's not at war, the, yes. the countries are close to full employment, you know, almost everyone who wants a job has a job uh, and incomes are rising. And you can do much more to help those parts of the country that feel a bit left behind by that and I was a big advocate and still am of the Northern Powerhouse of belief that you could make the North of England stronger through government intervention. Um, but you know, a socialist utopia doesn't exist, and cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world by leaving the EU and saying to immigrants, go home, doesn't work either. And I think you have to explain to people it's not, you know, I, the, the, one of the kind of great problems in politics, and this is obviously true through history in many other countries, is that the person who comes along with the big, simple idea which is, we're going to solve all these problems with one idea. So we're going to restore national sovereignty, you know, make sure you're, you feel better off, put more money into the NHS, and by leaving the EU, that's like one answer to a whole load of problems that doesn't work. You know, um, I wrestled with this in government, which was, you know, let's get rid of all these benefits which are so complicated and have all these perverse things involved in them, and we're going to have a universal credit, like one idea, one benefit, right? Um, and that didn't, you know, it's not working at the moment. So you don't, um, you know, you, these really simple ideological answers to very complex questions about how we all, look at us all in this room here, we are all sitting here enjoying this evening, you know, getting on with each other, and even though we have different opinions, managing that is really complicated. 
And I think these simple, simple answers are really lethal and, um, and very damaging. Okay, we've got time for one more question up on the balcony. The last question of the night, and therefore the best question possibly ever asked, so no pressure. <laughs> Do indicate clearly, and Daisy will bring the uh, microphone to you. Here we go. Hi, the name's Adrian. Uh, the question relates to, in the earlier on when we, you were chatting, you were saying about how important it is to know your enemy and, and what makes them make their decisions. Um, how come you managed to lose a majority for staying in the EU at 70% going into the poll to then actually lose the poll? Because to me, that's a monumental failure. And I don't mean to be rude, because I actually seem quite a nice guy. But, <laughs> but it's a monumental failure. And if I were you, I would look at myself in the mirror every morning and feel... You know. well, I think you're just wrong about the polling in this sense, which is that was not the real opinion of the country. And it was only when it was tested. You're, you're too into your opinion polls. Opinion polls will tell you the Conservatives could never win the 2015 election, and we did. Um, and I was pretty confident we would win that election. You know, the opinion polls... There's an interesting thing about this. First of all, on the opinion polls, every single opinion poll during that campaign, if you actually add it up... I think, you know, I'm sure someone will correct me, but this was my recollection. Every single opinion poll in that campaign, if you actually just looked at the raw numbers, so you said you asked a thousand people how many people said they want to leave the EU, and it was like 600 or 520 or whatever, and it was always a majority. And I would go, well, hold on, you're telling me the opinion poll says it's like 40% want to leave. And so, oh, well, we've adjusted for the fact that we only reached you know, elderly people at home or working people weren't at home or... Likelihood to vote, as they perceived it. Yes, and the truth was, every single poll was telling the same thing, if you just looked at the numbers. Um, and there was, you know, when, when push came to shove, in this country, there was not a, resi a, you know, a group of, a large group of the population who saw the merits of being in the EU, saw the broader security benefits for our country and the absence of war for 70 years in Europe. Um, and the only thing that they were really kind of weighing up uh, was, mm, it might be a bit economically risky, but my heart's in it. Uh, and that's the, I'm not saying that the campaign we ran um, was a good campaign, because it wasn't. Uh, and that's patently obvious. And actually that TV drama, uh, you know, Vendit Cumberbatch, I thought was quite good at <laughs> capturing, I don't know how accurate it was about the, the other side's campaign, but it was quite accurate at sort of capturing the sort of um, sterile nature of the Remain campaign. Um, we were not able to kind of find an emotional argument for European Union membership. And elections are quite emotional. Um, and it was partly because the residue of opinion was there. It, was, it wasn't there. It was partly because we were this very broad coalition. You know, I was having to talk to Jeremy Corbyn's uh, team every day saying, what are you doing to help us win this referendum? Answer, fuck all. And it was, you know, we were all, we, you know, it was the TUC and the CBI and the Greens and the Conservatives, and it was this, this enormous kind of coalition. And we were like, you know, the sort of standing army, the, the permanent army on the plane. And, the, you know, the, the um, rebellion came out of the woods and <laughs> destroyed us. And um, so, yeah, I, I think we also have to just, I'll, I'll absolutely take responsibility. Um, but I think we all have to sort of examine ourselves and say, you know, did we realise what we were going to miss? Did we really realise what was at stake? Did the media properly tell us? 
answer no. Uh, did we all understand the significance of it? There'll be some people who said, yes, I understood all along. But there'll be many people who said, I didn't actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's partly a failure of political leadership. Um, but, but it's also, you know, as I come back to, let's you know, end on, on something optimistic, you know, because politics is the hope business, future business. Um, you know, that this is still being contested. You know, as Zoe's just told us, the House of Commons has not found a way forward. There's still, uh, at the moment, I think, no clear majority for the withdrawal agreement. We're still looking at a potentially long delay to Brexit, and the game is afoot, and, and the stakes could not be higher. Um, last one. That is a hopeful message for uh, 48% of us, possibly more. Um, uh, uh, I should ask you, well, of course, the biggest issue of the day that we haven't spoken about is the uh, toss attacks. Um, will this, this new poll. I thought it had been delayed, though, hadn't it? I read somewhere in. Delayed gratification, perhaps. Um, 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 tantric, a tantric porn tag. Um, it, do you agree with taxing people to watch pornography? And, and will the tax affect you personally? Um, uh, I don't think, well, I, I certainly do agree on the protections. I think, um, I don't think, I didn't think it was a tax, was it? I thought it's just that it's going to block the material and it's used. Well, anyway, I. I thought it was just a sort of general block. I, I, de I definitely agree you should be, make it harder to see. <laughs> and I think also, um, you know, we could have another half hour on this, but I think uh, the you know, regulation of technology is coming in a very big way. And if this country was not completely obsessed with this pointless exercise of trying to leave the EU, um, you know, we would be talking about how do we you know, regulate big technology so that it has all the benefits it brings, which I, I think are you know, enormous, but it is also working uh, in a way that does not damage society, whether it's about fake news or children being exposed to things they should not be exposed to or um, the size of these companies or the destruction that's happening to the rest of the media because they're taking all the advertising. You know, all of those things would be a really juicy political topic for a progressive conservative or a centre-left uh, Labour person. And we can form an alliance and get on with it. We can form it tonight. <laughs> a new part? But would, would, we, would we involve the ticks? Or? I'm, I'm not sure anyone would read or hear about us because Facebook wouldn't... But my adverts. But anyway, uh, George, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before we thank George, I can't yet announce who next month's guest is, but I can tell you who's going to be here in May to be Ken Clark, Yay! which is very exciting. I can announce April's very, very soon and June's very, very soon. And hopefully later in the year, David Cameron will... <laughs> I will put in a good word. Thank you very, very much. Uh, George, it's been, a, it's been such a treat, not just talking about Brexit, but picking your brains about so many other things. Um, thank you for, for agreeing That's to come great. in. That's great. I've really enjoyed it. And ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go, George Osborne, what an amazing guest. And hopefully uh, that will lead to David Cameron coming on the show um, at some point in the not-too-distant future. What, what, a, what a treat that would be. Um, George was fantastic. And, I, I mean, the Ian Duncan Smith story is amazing. The Gordon Brown one, 
the Mike Hancock. I mean, what a blast from the past that was. Uh, he was so funny. Um, but you, I mean, I suppose, and it's the note we kind of end on, is that sense that things are up for grabs now. And obviously, talking to him, as the news broke, that none of those indicative votes were able to command a majority on the floor, floor of the House of Commons is a real moment. Because I wonder if that moment proves to be a, a significant milestone in either a referendum or something else. Um, but to talk to such a significant political figure on such a momentous political day um, really was a treat as a fan of politics. Um, and he was a brilliant... I mean, it's the thing, you always know that they're going to be great. But it's still a, such a thrill to sit opposite someone who was chance for the exchequer. And to ask them all about it. And someone who's played a leading role in shaping the politics of the country we live in. Um, so the thrill of making this show uh, seven years in is, is undimmed. Uh, and I hope you feel the same way. So thank you to all of you who come to the shows. Uh, all of you who tweet about it. Uh, all of you who listen and subscribe. Please do leave an iTunes review. It helps other people find it. Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, as Alex Bromwich did. Um, he says he's a massive fan of the podcast, has been to a few live shows. Thank you very much, Alex. He said, I can probably reveal the strangest place this podcast has ever been played. I'm in Vietnam on a post-grad trip. I was listening to your podcast with the independent group on my way to a day excursion to Viet Cong's Chu Chi Chun... Chu Chi... Oh, some tunnels... Uh, he says, when I was in the tunnel, I could hear some faint noises at the bottom of my rucksack as I pulled out the phone from my bag. The loud voices of Anne Coffey and Mike Gates were echoing around the tunnel. Well, there you go. Can you top that? Always let me know where you listen. It doesn't matter how exotic or indeed mundane you think it is. Um, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com and any suggestions for guests, any help with booking guests uh, would be uh, greatly appreciated. Um... Thank you to all of you that have seen me on tour. It's the most thrilling tour I've ever done. It's a brilliant time to be doing stand-up about political comedy. Thank you to all of uh, you have supported me by coming. And again, thank you for listening to the show. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.